Hey, Sandy, thanks so much for joining us today on the Harbinger podcast. So before we delve into details and talk a little bit more about uh, your role at Indiegogo and how it enables innovation and cross-border opportunities, could you share a little bit more about your career track to date? You've clearly done a lot and you're not even 30 yet. So you know, starting from Pinterest and then to the One Piano, which also launched its product on Indiegogo, and eventually to your current role as head of global growth for Indiegogo, we'd just like to learn a little bit more about you. Absolutely. Well, I think you summarized it pretty well yourself there. Just starting at the start of my experience, I really joined Pinterest at an early stage when the company was 100 people. And for me, it was a decision of do I want to go into old industry, not necessarily in that it's outdated, but investment banking, consulting, where you get to meet a lot of smart people, or do I want to really branch out and learn to do my own thing? And for me, Pinterest was a really great fit. So I, I really started out building my career around customer advocacy. So I started out in user operations, answering support tickets, believe it or not, and that evolved into so many opportunities for me as the company experienced massive growth. So within two years' time, by the time I left Pinterest, the organization was 800 folks. But I think this is really what defined the core of everything that I looked for in um, opportunities in the future because it taught me about customer advocacy. It's understanding who your customers are, how to reach them, and how to service them. So I actually took that core value, went to the One Smart Piano, which is a cross-border company based in San Francisco and Beijing, and I helped them with international growth and expansion. And even though I had never sold pianos before that and barely played the instrument, I really took my understanding of what the customer needed to use the product, feel my own understanding of music technology and the piano as an instrument itself, and then try to relay that through the marketing messages that I sent along to customers. And that also, again, fueled my um, competency with digital marketing, which ended up having this full view of what full stack marketing looks like. So. Uh, because of that experience, I ended up in this role here at Indiegogo in which I'm helping to advise many Chinese companies in their efforts abroad as they're trying to understand who these U.S. customers are and where to find them. Thanks for that. Uh, super helpful context on uh, what you've done to date and then uh, what you're currently doing at Indiegogo. Um, so you know, I feel the Indiegogo piece, the whole crowdfunding platform is a really uh, interesting bit. Uh, the one, you know, if I recall correctly, was uh, was a product that sold on Indiegogo, right? You got, they did right. a crowdfunding campaign. So I think for our audience, it would be helpful to better understand what Indiegogo actually is. Um, the crowdfunding concept, I think a lot of people understand to an extent. They might have heard of Kickstarter or Indiegogo, but why don't you provide a summary of what Indiegogo actually does and how it compares to some of the other uh, platforms out there? Absolutely. So this is how I think of Indiegogo. I think of Indiegogo as a launch pad for your next product, and your next innovation. So I think Indiegogo was founded in 2008, and originally it was a fundraising platform for projects in the arts, um, independent projects that would not be able to find funding otherwise, such as through traditional venture capital. And in addition to that, it was a type of fundraising that allowed you to go straight to your customers or your fans at that point in time. But really in 2015, we started to see that there was a very strong sticking point with companies offering products and tangible rewards for receiving the fundraising and the support that their backers donated in the form of dollars. 
So it was really at that time when we had some of our monumental hardware success um, launch on the platform. For example, Jibo, um, a home social robot. Um, we also had Scully, an AR motorcycle helmet. And it was kind of that time when IoT as an industry started to really emerge. It's connecting all of the products around you into um, internet-connected products, in many ways considered as passive computing. So, you know, fast track to the modern day and... Indiegogo is used by small and medium-sized enterprises to large enterprises like Bose and P&G alike. And it's used as market validation to test whether or not these new products that we want to offer to consumers are compelling to them, but also a great way for you to gain early market traction. And it's used in both ways equally by companies successfully. So. I think that one of the ways that Indiegogo really stands out is that we focus on helping businesses build their businesses effectively. So instead of considering crowdfunding as a one-off sales event, we think about it as the first step in what you're doing to gain market traction. So after crowdfunding, you actually have to ship the product. So we build relationships with logistics partners, with shipping partners, um, manufacturing partners, and even with distribution partners. So we're all about the entire life cycle and we're about evergreen business success, not just a one-time crowdfunding event. Yep, great, yeah, that, that makes sense. And uh, just to make sure my understanding is correct, uh, does Inigo focus primarily on electronic products or smart smart hardware? Because for example, uh, whether it's Kickstarter or GoFundMe, oftentimes you can crowdfund for events, for music, uh, for, I suppose, even personal personal uh, initiatives and activities. That's That would be correct in terms of our positioning and who we serve best. Hmm. I think that we don't have a rule on the platform that says you can't fundraise for the other things, but hmm. given our resources, the way that our page and um, our entire backend hmm. is set up, it's more conductive for a company with offering a product to hmm. set up their SKUs, to set up um, their shipping status, and everything that's involved with building and delivering a product. Mm-hmm. Understood. So in you go, in terms of how you position yourself and differentiate against some of the other crowdfunding platforms, is that all built around a differentiation in terms of product? Uh, so as a result, all the tools, the, the, the so-called logistics afterwards that you, get, that you just mentioned, those would be built around the type of product that you guys typically crowdfund for? That is correct. And I just want to expand on that point a bit to say, I think that our product is made for um, the product builders and makers, um, but actually really at the core of everything that Indiegogo offers is uh, what we believe to be service. Hmm. So we really okay. understand who our customers are. And as you know, a, a great example of that, um, in order to help more Chinese brands and manufacturers export their brands to Western countries like the United States and Europe and other markets like that. We've actually created a special program called our Indiegogo China Fast Track that enables a company to go from zero knowledge of how to set up all of this to launching a campaign that raises millions of dollars. And as part of that is in language, you know, Chinese in language services, being able to provide materials in the Chinese language, understanding the unique needs and hurdles of working in a foreign country and a foreign market. So we really do tailor all of our services, um, all of our offerings to the customer that we want to help succeed. Hmm. That sounds really promising. Let's dig into that a little bit. So I'm just thinking from a Chinese company's perspective, let's assume the product is built there. I mean, we know that Shenzhen, or China in general, is a manufacturing hub. 
But when it comes to selling to other markets, a number of different areas that require localized expertise. Then you hit on some of them. Uh, you know, sales certainly, um, marketing, understanding the local uh, tastes and, and and culture. So um, let's just take an example. There's a Chinese company, or perhaps give an example of a company you guys have worked with before that's been part of the China Fast Track uh, initiative. Um, can you give us a little bit more detail on the different steps along the way and the specific services you guys were able to provide for them during that uh, crowdfund process? Absolutely. I mean, I'd love to share the story of a work that I did with a client. Their name is CKCom, and they are an audio products manufacturer based in Shenzhen. And when I first met this team, it was very clear to me that this distribution company, company that wants to sell products around the world, had always been in the position of being an OEM, an original electronics manufacturer. So they would effectively uh, white label their products to other brands so that other brands can sell the products. But they had never had a channel directly to consumers. And some of the pitfalls of that are that when you have OEM customers, then you yourself become a middleman and you have very low margins. So it's very hard for you to profit easily unless you have very large purchase order sizes. Mm. And I, I sort of saw this struggle as you know a, a company who had been in Shenzhen for over a decade and just always been that that middleman that had low margins and really wanted to branch out and build their own brand. It's it's aspirational, it's good for business, and it helps them produce longer-term value so that when they release new products in the future, they don't have to rebuild their customer base every single time. So they approached Indiegogo and you know we were able to help them pair up with marketing agencies and also help them identify the specific product that they should launch and offer to US customers. And as a result of that effort, they not only were able to increase their product margin by over 300%, they were also able to create this brand, this evergreen brand that now they can use to build out a team, attract talent, and continue to build their operations in the United States. So I think one of the critical roles that Indiegogo played in that um, that situation was being the platform that helped to facilitate and to enable this to happen. Because if Indiegogo didn't exist, their next best alternative would be to hire someone, you know, from you know a Stanford grad, Berkeley grad, so, and someone who was completely bilingual and able to work with both sides of the market. And as you know, that's sort of a unicorn talent. It's just someone that's really hard to buy. And even in the case that they wanted to have this job, it's like, how do I convince them to work for me instead of another big Chinese um, technology? And so that's, I said, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think that that's something that um, really moves me and really inspires me to continue, you know, working hard at building out this program. Hmm. From what I hear, it sounds like Indiegogo is a, a very valuable platform that offers early stage companies or you know, some larger companies that are testing out new products a way to really quickly iterate on their ideas. Essentially getting out a product, getting a market feedback, uh, and really minimizing the amount of cost it takes to, to launch without having to build up a proper team and, and have you know, full capabilities and requirements on the ground. And also minimizes risk as well uh, for, for the company. Is that understanding appropriate? That, that's correct. I mean, also another 
you know, great exaggerated case study to, to really exemplify this would be we have some enterprise clients like Bose, for example, you know, one of the world's largest audio products makers. And you probably know them for the headphones that they make, the noise canceling headphones. And normally for them, if they want to roll out a new product, it's a matter of brick and mortar rollout. So they pick a few coasts and they pick a few hundred stores to roll out the product and they lay down the manufacturing capital. Um, put the units in the shelves, and then they use that as a test of whether or not the products will fly off the shelves. So that's, first off, that takes a really long time. Secondly, they're spending a ton of money on that upfront rollout. And then third, they actually don't even get the direct customer insights because it's Target or it's Walmart that's selling the product or not and understanding who the customer is, but they do not pass that information back to Bose. So Bose ran an Indiegogo campaign for a new product that they were offering, and they were able to bypass all three of those barriers and decide whether or not they wanted to invest R&D in a completely new product within the span of three months versus three years, potentially. Yeah, that's that's a really good example, um, and uh, you know it's an interesting point in, in terms of when it's a relatively early product that you want to do a little bit of testing on. It seems that Indiegogo is a really good place to start from, but um, you know, assuming that these companies that use your platform uh, get that initial beachhead, a little bit of validation, then where do they go next? I mean, would that would they the example that you gave for Bose? Once it's validated, would it go straight into the Best Buys, the WalMarts, the you know offline uh, retail or Amazon, or are there other uh, more appropriate steps in between? That's a great question. So I think that this answer is it really varies depending on the company's goals. And for, for instance, I have some clients whose goal entirely is to verify whether or not they're making the right decision. And that could be that they've already decided to build out this team and they just need a different iteration of the product. And yet there are other teams who have already decided that they completely want to roll this out, but they just want that a, li a little bit of initial market traction to gain more internal resources. So I would say it really depends on the company's individual goals. Um, I find also that a lot of the Chinese companies I work with, it tends to steer on the later side of the distribution strategy. So it's that they've already distributed the product in China and it's been a success and they want to offer a variation for a global customer. So mm -hmm. normally in those situations, then crowdfunding becomes entirely a marketing and branding campaign. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, so I noticed a, uh, a company called um, uh, Truman and they sell this, uh, this uh, wireless earbud now. Um, not sure what it's called. Is it, it's not the tick watch. It's the it's the it's tick, tick pod. Tick pod exactly. Um, I'm not quite. Is that on Indiegogo? Was it Kickstarter? But that's uh, on Indiegogo uh, right now. Uh, okay. Because it seems to me that these guys have done crowdfunding before. They're a relatively established company, uh, but they're raising large amounts via uh, Indiegogo. And this is not a you know fifty thousand go or hundred thousand go to you know validate initial interest, but rather this is a uh, million dollars, two million dollars plus in terms of uh, backer support. So for them, are they using Ego as, a, as an actual uh, sales channel or a sustainable one? Yeah, I would almost think about it positioned as pre-e-commerce. Um, and pre-e-commerce typically we find is used in two ways. It's a little bit of market validation in the sense that you want to test all of the uh, value props that you have put together for this customers. Mm -hmm. And you have a strong idea in mind of who your customers are. And now is just you're using crowdfunding as the distribution channel to reach those customers. So it's a little bit of testing around everything you've learned and hopefully you you know go out of the gate with all the right messaging and all of the right channels. Mm. 
But the second piece of that is literally sales. So it's pre-order sales, um, as some call it. And this contributes toward, you know, your annual revenue goals. And it's a great way to gain a lot of sales in a short amount of time because of the way that crowdfunding works. You know, crowdfunding is a tool that has a countdown. So it's 30 to 60 days and it gets people excited. It's almost like a flash sale notion. It gets people excited to purchase today and right now. And you also are able to showcase um, and sort of reward your customers for backing you early by providing them discounts. So there are there are all these e-commerce tactics and tools that you can use to generate more sales than you might be able to generate in even potentially like a six-month period. Mm. Right, right. Uh, and you, you mentioned the e-commerce component because I'm just thinking, um, starting up as a crowdfunding platform, there's a lot of value in what Indigo provides to a lot of companies out there, uh, in particular hardware companies come to mind. And then I'm just, like, if you're trying to enter the US market, I really can't think of too many online channels. I mean, there's Newegg, I suppose, there's uh, Amazon, there's eBay, but usually the, the biggest, uh, the largest scale platform would be Amazon. Uh, but if some companies that come on Indiegogo are experiencing good, good success, uh, generating millions of dollars of revenue uh, from, from that, uh, do you ever see Indigo becoming more of an e-commerce platform itself? And if so, what would it take for it to compete against the likes of Amazon, et cetera? That's a really great question. Um, pointing to Amazon specifically, Amazon actually has an area on their site called Amazon Launchpad, um, which I've mm. used in my previous company and I you know, recommend to a lot of the clients that I work with. And Amazon Launchpad is sort of a section on the site for what's hot and new to the platform. So I think something ah, okay. you can think about in terms of Indiegogo as a hardware distribution channel and Amazon would, would be to think about it like this. As a user, there are certain products that you know you want to purchase. And these are, these are what I call intention-based shopping behaviors. So you go to Amazon when you know you want toilet paper, when you know you want a charger of a specific specification, when you know you want a power bank that has a certain amount of juice. However, Indiegogo is more of a site, I believe, for users who know that they're generally interested in certain things, like let's say audio, but perhaps you're interested in seeing what's new on the market, or you just want to make sure that the products that you're using are going to give you the best experiences. But as you know, technology is constantly developing, and we all want to make sure that you know, we're, we're using the most cutting edge, we're using the best tech that is out there. So you come to Indiegogo not with the intention in mind that you necessarily want to buy a robot that you can Skype your friends with across the world, but you come to the platform and you see it and you realize that that use case resonates with you and you purchase it. And I think we call that more discovery-oriented shopping. So I think for hardware on Indiegogo, we find that if you have a product at the early adopting stage, so potentially it's a product that doesn't have a mature category for marketing purposes, doesn't have set keywords that your users will be looking for, then it might be, might be hard for you to gain early market traction. And Indiegogo helps you knock down those barriers by helping you to aggregate all of those early adopters and then helping to surface your project where they might best discover you. Okay. So based on what we've seen, many of the companies that are selling these innovative new smart hardware products on Indiegogo are Chinese. Not all of them, but uh, a large number. And I was just curious, uh, even you know, despite their efforts of having localized marketing, uh, UGC, and uh, branding, um, I wonder from a user's perspective, do they care that a lot of these products are made in China, made by Chinese companies? 
Yeah, you know, so that's a very interesting question. And to precede my answer to this, um, I'm a true believer and I have seen that it doesn't matter what kind of product you're building. If it's hardware and it's got electronic components, you make a trip to Shenzhen regardless. Um, all of your paths, whether you're an innovator in Europe or in the United States or anywhere around the world, the supply chain points you back to China at some point in time. And then you take your first trip here, you land and you're just blown away by everything that's possible. So what's, you know, what I, what I really want to emphasize here is that China is not necessarily what people thought it was years ago. And I think that it's not necessarily that China has changed so much. It's certainly changed in many ways. I think that our ideas about what China is has been molded by things around us. And it couldn't be truer for crowdfunding. Because crowdfunding in the past, you know, in the past few years, unfortunately, there have been cases where a lot of the founders have taken the money and not been able to effectively manage their supply chain or their bomb costs and find out that they don't have enough capital to ship these products to their customers after the fact. So they have the money and they aren't able to deliver on their promises. But what's interesting for Indiegogo as a crowdfunding platform that, you know, very proactively features Chinese products is our users see the Chinese companies and they've realized and something clicks in their head for them to know that a Chinese company is able to much better effectively manage their supply chain and somehow access manufacturing in a way that non-Chinese companies aren't. So, you know, for that reason, we find that Indiegogo is able to create a balanced, even playing field for e-commerce in a way that I believe many other platforms are not able to do, even the likes of Amazon or even bigger brands out there that are focused on mature product sales. Right. So, Shenzhen. <laughs> I, I, yes. I, do, I agree. I think uh, it warrants a trip there for anyone who's interested in learning about China tech and uh, just hardware in general. It's, it's not just a hub for tech files anymore. Certainly, a lot of the more um, uh, innovative hardware uh, and sophisticated hardware electronics are, are manufactured there. So um, let's actually focus a little bit more on Shenzhen in general. Um, you know, for those who've never been there, can you actually describe the supply chain? Uh, you know, what really blows you away there? Yes, yes. So the thing that really blows me away about Shenzhen is that the supply chain is at your fingertips mm. and that your manufacturing facilities and all of your resources are next door. So when you go to Shenzhen and you attend any form of like a meetup or an event or even just go meet a company, one of the first things they'll say to you is, you know, maybe I'll go drive down to my factory that's 40 minutes away from here and just see how things are going. And that's really the luxury of manufacturing and developing products that we will never have here in the United States. For you to manage manufacturing and your supply chain from a world away is incredibly difficult and oftentimes um, out of your control. So in order for you to meet up and have a face-to-face -face discussion or check in on things, you might have someone you know, based there full time, but oftentimes as you know, someone in the US, you might hop on a plane just to head over to Hong Kong, cross the border to Shenzhen, and then from Shenzhen take a, cap, uh, a taxi cab ride down to your plant. So I think that, that access to your entire supply chain right within 40 minutes of where you live is incredible and it allows companies there to be able to turn out products, be leaner in testing and just really capture market opportunities 
Mm-hmm. When it comes to creating things like accessories or any sort of peripheral accessories um, around big trends in a way that I don't think is possible here, even in Silicon Valley. Mm. Yeah, those are really good points. And it gets me thinking, I mean, with this, with this manufacturing uh, capability and the hub that is Shenzhen uh, and, and other areas in China, Changzhou, for example, what does that enable Chinese companies to do or Chinese tech companies to do uh, in terms of new product innovation, new business models, etc.? Uh, and I'll give you one example, and love to get your views on it. Um, Xiaomi, obviously, uh, not everyone in the world knows about Xiaomi, but increasingly the name is becoming much more uh, recognized. Xiaomi clearly is um, positioning for a $100 billion IPO at the end of this year. They started off selling smartphones uh, and eventually started investing a lot of other smart hardware companies and created an ecosystem around that. And uh, they're one of the top sellers of smart hardware, IoT devices, etc. In, in China. And increasingly going overseas, you know that, that's just one example. But love to get your views on what uh, the manufacturing capabilities and know-how, you know, not just factories, but also a lot of the expertise and knowledge as well. What enable Chinese companies to do, and then what is that? What what should an, an American audience or Western audience in general try to uh, try to learn from this uh, from these developments? Absolutely. So I think one thing that Xiaomi really exemplifies about the strength of Chinese smart hardware builders. And I think that can that they can really teach the rest of the world is just really how they have redefined innovation in my eyes, and I think in the rest of the world's eyes, because one thing that Xiaomi really has grasped with a lot of the millions of consumers in China is the trust that they can get for any products that they distribute. So if you're a third-party brand and you get you know, absorbed into the Xiaomi ecosystem, or if you're Xiaomi's products themselves, you get to tap into this massive, massive distribution system through physical stores, through online distribution, through branding, through media outlets that get the customer's trust right away. And one of the ways that they're able to do that is what I believe and what I call price innovation. So it's offering a product that a customer really wants and at a really low price and at the quality that they trust and that they deserve. Mm. I think that's one thing from the hardware field in the United States particularly that is not so ideal right now. Mm. So something that costs $800, like let's say um, it's a hoverboard in the United States, could cost half that price in China. And same thing with smartphones, same thing with wireless earbuds. And here at Indiegogo, that's actually one trend that I was able to identify even from a few years ago. So we saw the first variation of a smartphone gimbal stabilizer being offered at something like a $300 price point. And that was offered by you know a team based here in the United States. And within a year's time, Chinese companies were able to innovate on that and offer a product at half that price, so about $150 in the following year. And the reason that's so important is because a product is innovative, not necessarily because its technology is great, but because it's commercially viable. You can put it into the hands of the customer and have them actively use it in their lives. Mm. And I think that's one thing that Xiaomi and a lot of these Chinese hardware companies have taught myself and even a lot of the companies on our platform nowadays. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's super interesting in terms of the, the price innovation because not only does it enable more users to buy such products, but also can influence user behavior and just general uh, understanding and comfort with buying these these smart hardware products, which is essentially is a platform on top of which a lot of other companies, not just China, but in the U.S., can 
benefit from. You know, currently, folks just might not be used to buying some of these products that they think that they might not need. Uh, if it's not it's not a gangshu, it's not a must-have. But if you can reduce the price to a certain extent, then at the very least, they can try to play around with it. And who knows, right? They may actually really like it and just get used to our concept. Uh, that That's really, really cool. And um, in terms of what Xiaomi is doing in China, um, can you talk to us a little bit more about how that could be brought to the U.S.? I mean, is that model even possible in the U.S.? Or is it so far away that it's enabled to differentiate or differentiate, excuse I, I really have a lot of trouble saying that word, differentiate or innovate based on price? Um, you know, give an example, right? As you mentioned, Xiaomi has a lot of offline stores currently in China, a few overseas. But these stores, they're kind of Apple-like in the sense that uh, there's a nice, uh, you know, clean design, ambiance. But beyond just uh, smartphone and tablets, etc., they'll have uh, they'll have hoverboard, they'll have self-bouncing vehicles, they'll have drones, they have a ton of other products in there. Is that feasible in the U.S.? That's a great question. So this is my perspective on it, um, which is that I believe that the U.S. retail e-commerce industry has evolved and in many ways matured to a state that's quite different than China's. I don't think it's necessarily more advanced. I just think that it's evolved differently. And one of the primary differences comes around how centralized channels of distribution are. And this sort of goes back to the point around removing barriers to adoption through lowering the price point and making it affordable to the mass consumer. So, you know, here in the United States, our distribution channels from a retail perspective are incredibly, incredibly decentralized. In order for you to meet your revenue goals, you not only have to sell through your own branded website, you also have to distribute on Amazon. And then just in the category of electronics alone, you know, Newegg is more servicing towards those interested in computer components and potentially gaming devices. And then you have Best Buy for more consumer products at a lower price point, and then Target is for more family-oriented technology, et cetera, et cetera. So there isn't really sort of a eggs-in-one-basket strategy for distribution the way there is in China. And I think that's what uh, Xiaomi's distribution is doing in China. It's telling you that if you're able to be absorbed into our ecosystem here, you can put all of your eggs in one basket because you get funding here from us, and you get brand and trust from us and you also get our distribution. So it sort of is a one key fits all, one size fits all solution. Whereas in the United States, that's just not a model that works. Hmm. Hmm, I see. Well, so, I mean, for Xiaomi, uh, to your point, it's not only just distribution or branding, but it's also product design and a lot of consultancy ahead, uh, in the earlier stages, depending on when the company gets in, but usually it's a relatively early stage, let's say Cedar Series A, so they benefit from all of that. Oh, and also supply chain. A lot of the, the costs right. that go into the product they are relatively cheaper. Yeah, so you don't really have that in the U.S. just yet. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of whether that will ever happen is, is, is to be seen. But um, I suppose another part of that question I asked you earlier was um, if it's not doable by um, naturally in the U.S., could we see stores like the Xiaomi store coming to the U.S.? Uh, or other comparables, uh, or, or maybe it's not Xiaomi, but perhaps the, the concept of having a, a, an offline store where you can experience a lot of cool smart hardware products, whether you're Chinese or not, enabling users to actually uh, play with a lot of different things and then more easily make a decision to buy. That's an interesting question, and I think that sort of touches upon this like idea of O2O 
marketing sales that does not, not really happen in the U.S. yet. Um, What's the overall for audience? Yeah, so um, from a marketing standpoint, that would be online to offline, um, sort of cross-platform uh, retargeting and remarketing. So let's say you see an advert online on WeChat or you see it on their website and then you want to try out the product and you'll try it out in a store and then you'll purchase it. Hmm. And here in the U.S., we call it reverse showrooming. So uh -huh, one of the right. best examples of that is Best Buy, right? You don't really buy things from Best Buy anymore, unfortunately, but you like to try it out and see if you like it. If you do, you'll price compare with Amazon and then you'll buy it there. In terms of showcasing hardware products, there's, there's much to be desired. Um, there have been a few companies here such as Beta, um, Target also has its own IoT smart hardware showcase. Um, Best Buy is trying something Bed Bath & Beyond is also trying a corner for technology products. So everyone understands that with a lot of the smarter devices that they need to showcase how they work. Otherwise, the majority of consumers don't understand how it works right off the bat and need that convincing in order to purchase. But one of the challenges is that these products require so much demoing and explanation that just putting a product inside of a showroom does not help them to understand how it works. And I think probably the better way to solve this problem is combining that and bringing this O2L idea in and using the format of videos and more interactive media to solve that problem. Mm. So there are some interesting companies out there using things like VR goggles and VR videos or even AR displays to showcase these mm. interactive situations. But I think that how this becomes successful remains to be seen in the United States. Right, that makes sense. But is it always users going to a store and exploring products, having experience um, ahead of time before buying it online? Could it also be the case that, and as you're mentioning, that if the user is provided with a lot of content experiences online, uh, whether it's video, on mobile, etc., that actually drives them to better understand a product and then go offline and buy it back in a store? Yeah, so I think it's got to be a combination of both. And one of the biggest barriers around making that happen in Western markets, um, I believe, is something that China offers that is very infeasible in the United States due to um, economies of scale that's possible through labor. So, you know, in China, you can order an electronics product or smart hardware and you can receive it same day or, you know, the next day. And you can just as easily return it. Um, however, in the United States, you know, you order a product that you really want and then you potentially get it from a website that ships within seven days. And then by that point, it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. You don't really want it anymore. And then returns is sort of a hassle. So there's not really this idea that you can buy a product and try it out and see if you like it. And then in addition to that, products here are really expensive. Logistics is really expensive. If you ever paid shipping on that, you know, why would you pay for return shipping to get it back there? So just for so many reasons, people are not incentivized to go out and try these new products themselves in their homes. And I think that's re what's really needed to have you experience that product in your use case and in the situation that it's required to be in. Um, I think smart speakers is a really great example of that. You know, um, luckily, that's something you can try out at the store because it's, you know, voice control. But if you don't know what that experience is like in your home, then it's really hard for you to imagine whether or not it would be useful in your life. Mm -hmm. And I think that China does have that luxury of having a really, really 
um, great and convenient logistics system so that you can ship something to your door very easily, try it and, you know, not keep the product if it doesn't work out. Hmm. Right. That, that makes sense. And, and tying things together based on your, your really clear understanding of the customer and, and clearly helping them run in your platform. Um, so if you're a Chinese company, let's say a company creating some type of uh, hardware, whether it's smart or, uh, or toy, uh, you know, uh, what have you, uh, if they're trying to enter the U.S. market and uh, they use Indigo as a first step, you know, for them to really build out their teams, build out their uh, their sales channels, their overall business in the U.S., could you just try to summarize for our audience again, uh, what are the typical steps? What are some key things they should keep in mind? Yes, yeah, so I think that in terms of crowdfunding for a U.S. market, the key thing to really think about at the center of everything is who the customer is and realizing and identifying upfront that this U.S. customer's behavior, interests, their acceptance on price point, um, everything is going to be different than what their customers in China are thinking and saying. So I think the one key time point and suggestion I would have for Chinese companies is to improve on what they believe long-term value for their customers is. And I think that's one thing that, generally speaking, all Chinese companies going abroad can think about better. So, you know, to define this a little bit, I think long-term engagement metrics is not something that Chinese companies really value at the core. Things like user engagement, monthly active users, or even the number of over-the-air updates that software um, experiences can send over to improve experiences over time. So rather than thinking about crowdfunding as I want to sell as many products as possible in 30 months in, in 30 days. I, I really want companies to think about how can this first step help me reach more of the U.S. customers that I want to grow in one year's time, two years' time, five years' time. Yeah, that's that that's totally fair. I think um, uh, hitting a certain revenue. Figure. I mean, over a million dollars is always quite a positive thing for all parties involved. Uh, but you're right. I think in some cases, some of the early products that we see uh, for the early adopter crowd, uh, crowdfunding is not just an opportunity to sell it, but also get some feedback. And once the backers get it, uh, really get the, get their feedback as much as possible, conduct more product testing, probably perhaps even try to refine a product before really massively scaling up sales. Um, I think that's a really, really fair point. Um, and, and just to... I push a little bit further there, but assuming that the product is ready, uh, and let's say crowdfunding was the first step, but the company has hired a couple of core people in the local market, um, and they're really they're really massively scaled things up. I mean, what are are there any any thoughts from your end in terms of a go-to-market strategy or some sort of playbook in terms of some of the key channels ahead of some of the key uh, milestones to keep in mind for that Chinese company? Yeah, absolutely. So I I think the first one um, I would say is just uh, never underestimate what work needs to be done and the importance of keeping a community. Mm-hmm. So, you know, your crowdfunding campaign is like locked and you've already finished that stuff. Keeping your customers engaged through content like newsletters, keeping them up to date on what your company is building next. Having those early ambassadors follow you along with your journey season and season after season mm-hmm. is going to be a core asset to all of your future launches and anything else that you do. And sort of speaking of seasons, keeping in fa- keeping in mind that you know seasonality is a huge factor in how U.S. sales work is really important. So you know in January you're probably preparing for a summer, and during the summertime that's when all of the media outlets are locking down their Christmas guides 
and all of the Christmas sales and all of the offline retail distribution on what's actually on the shelves during Christmas season, which, um, as you know, is one of the largest shopping seasons. So sort of keeping up to pace with that, every time you're finishing up a crowdfunding campaign or every time you've finish some sort of launch that you have, I think is really key in planning your go-to-market. Mm. Okay, so Sandy, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for your, for your time and for your perspectives. Uh, very, very insightful stuff. Great, it's been a fun conversation.